Well, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, three different groups or kinds. I try and categorize things so they kind of relate to each other because if I skip around too much, I feel like I'm, you know, tormenting you. But we're going to be looking at angels and demons Issues related to that, some issues related to false doctrine, and issues related to the last times this morning. And so here is the first question related to angels and demons. The question is, I have been reading in the Gospel of Matthew, and it seems as though demon possession was a common occurrence. Since Jesus was frequently casting demons out of people, and the disciples were given the power to do the same, why is it that we don't hear about demon possession today, at least not in conservative Christian circles. Does it still happen today? Well, this is a good question. First of all, let's define what we mean by demon possession. To be demon-possessed is to be controlled by one or more demons from within. That's what demon possession is. The demon enters into an unbeliever and totally takes over the unbeliever from within, one or more demons. That's what demon possession is. Believers cannot be demon-possessed. They can be tempted, they can be oppressed, but they cannot be possessed. When studying demons and demonology and possession, you always must remember this, that demons are not free agents to do whatever they want. Satan can't do whatever he wants. Do you remember what happened when um, in Luke 22:31, when Jesus told Peter, Peter, Satan is demanding permission to sift you like wheat. What does that tell you? Can Satan do anything he wants? No, he can only do what God allows him to do. And if God doesn't give him the permission, he can't do it. In the New Testament times, when Jesus was the Son of God, on earth, incarnate, he encountered many demon-possessed people. And those demons recognized that Jesus was God incarnate. And if you read through the Gospels, you discover what happened. They see Jesus, they recognize who he is, and then they cry out, you know, Jesus, the Holy One of God, you know, have you come here to torment us before our time? They're terrified, and they reveal themselves. And so Jesus then deals with them, and Jesus wanted this to happen. Why? Because he wanted people to see that he had power over Satan and his demonic throng. But, For instance, in your life, I don't know about mine, I've never come upon a person that says, you know, Jack Hughes of Burbank, California, you know, what do we have to do with you, sin-cursed pea braid? I mean, that never happens. That doesn't happen to me. And so they are not terrified of me. And so even though there have been times in my life when I think I have encountered people who have been demon-possessed, a couple instances for certain, um... I don't know for certain because the demons never just came out and, you know, exposed that they were there. So this is a little difference. That's why you see so much going on in the Gospels. Jesus, as the Messiah, was here to show mankind that he was who he claimed to be. The Son of God and the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ. Do you remember the incident in Matthew 11 where John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus and John the Baptist's disciples ask Jesus, Hey, John sent us and he wants to know if you are the Christ. And then what did Jesus say? Yes? No, he never answered the question. He said, Go tell John what you see me doing. And then he mentioned some of the things. You know, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Why did he say that? Because he, John would know who the Messiah was based off of what the Messiah would do. And so what was interesting is when Jesus was walking around on earth, he was there to prove a point. I am the Holy One of God, the Christ, the Messiah. Now, the last part of the question asks, does demon possession happen today? Well, sure it does. Of course it does. The problem is, 
is how do you know? Unless a demon reveals itself, how do you know the person just isn't sick? Or how do you know if they just aren't in rebellion? Or you don't know. See, unless the demons reveal themselves, you can guess. When you read through the Gospels, there's certain people who had different sicknesses and certain things that were wrong with them. And Jesus came up and he cast out a demon and they became well. And so those sicknesses were actually caused by demons. But Jesus was able to do that. We are not. Now, the last part of the question is, why don't you hear a lot about demon possession in conservative Christian circles? And there's several reasons for that. First, there is no way to positively identify if a person is demon possessed unless the demon comes out and says, hey, I'm a demon, you know, I'm legion, you know, or whatever. I'm Polyhon or whatever. And so you don't know. But let's just say that that happened. A demon came out. Then what would you do? Well, then you would have to try and deal with them by biblical means. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But usually demons want to deceive people. They don't want to be known. They don't want people to believe in them. So they don't reveal themselves. They want you to think that the only thing you deal with here on earth is other people. That there are no more intelligent beings besides you and other people. But we know from Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle as believers is against the world forces of darkness in the heavenly places. Remember Ephesians 2.2 says that unbelievers who walk according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So we know that Satan is using all unbelievers. They are enslaved or held captive by him to do his will. And that they are are deceived and deluded. And they don't know what's going on. They're just pawns of Satan. It doesn't mean they're all possessed, but they're all being used by Satan. All unbelievers are, in the words of Jesus, of their father, the devil. They do the deeds of their father, speaking to the religious leaders. So Satan is the father of all unbelievers. He is the father of all of those who reject Christ. And he works in and through them to do his will. Now, another reason you don't hear much talk about demon possession in conservative Christian circles is that Most conservative Christians want to distance themselves from certain groups that see demons in toasters and microwaves, in electric toothbrushes and transmissions. You've run into them. You know what I'm talking about. It's the people who, yeah, you know, I think I've got a demon in my, you know, microwave oven. Why is that? Well, you know, there were some sparks and it shorted out and made a weird noise. Uh, Maybe it's just broken. You know, there's the guy who claimed of the, talked about the demon of post-nasal drip. There's, there's so many people like that, that see demons that every, anytime there's a problem, anytime there's a breakdown, it's got to be a demon. And even though they don't know that, they, they believe. You just have to have faith. It's true. And then they're, you know, I cast you out in the name of Jesus of Nazareth or, you know, holy water or whatever. And they lapse into all these mystical means of trying to cast people out. Demons out of people, even believers. And it's just a bunch of ridiculousness. Demons are real. Their oppression of Christians is real. Their temptation of Christians is real. Their possessing of unbelievers is real. And when you go through the Bible, you can see it's real. The question, though, is how come you don't see a lot of it in Christian circles? Well, for some of the reasons I've already given is reasons but the real reason is this that god has not called us to cast out demons like jesus and the apostles think about this in all the letters to the churches in in romans and first corinthians and second corinthians and all of the letters to the churches how many texts are devoted to demon possession how to do demon possession, and what we need to know as Christians about demon possession. Zero. None. Now, why is that? Why is that? You see, this is the error that some groups make. They look at the Gospels and they say, hey, 
Jesus healed and he cast out demons and the apostles healed and cast out demons and those certain people that were given authority by the apostles or Jesus healed and cast out demons. Therefore, I can heal and cast out demons. This is a confusion between what is called descriptive passages and prescriptive passages. In other words, it's a confusion of understanding why signs and miracles even existed and a confusion of what is historically true and what is mandated for all believers. For instance, you go in the Old Testament and David is the man after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He commits adultery. Well, David did it. He's godly. Therefore, I can do it. That's the same kind of reasoning. Or they say, well, Jesus healed the sick, so I can heal the sick. Well, well, why don't you do some raising of the dead? Well, you know, a lot of snake handlers have died trying to handle snakes and getting bit like Paul. A lot of people have drank poison and died. Christians. And of course, when you die, it's, well, you because you don't have enough faith. No. What happens is, is when you look at the scriptures, you have to make sure that a text is a universal mandate and not just a historical narrative of what happened. You can't just go to a historical narrative and says Judas went out and hung himself, so we need to do the same thing. Or that Peter denied Christ three times, so all of us need to deny Christ three times right before the cock crows. See, that's, that's not right. No, when you want to know what to do, you go to the scriptures and you find out those texts that are addressing all believers. And when you go to the New Testament, there's no instruction on demon possession, which is very interesting. So the question is, how do we deal with them? If demon possession is true, and demons are still exist, and they are still opposing Christians, and Satan is still the, the devouring lion who is roaming about the earth, then how do we deal with it? What does the New Testament letters to the churches tell us to do? To preach the gospel. Why is that? Because the gospel is the power of God for all those who are held captive by Satan to do his will. The gospel is what frees us from the bondage of sin and Satan. The gospel is what transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The gospel is what causes us to receive Christ and the Holy Spirit within us. The gospel is the ultimate deliverance. I mean, even if you could go cast out a demon out of an unbeliever, they still wouldn't be saved. But the gospel does that and everything else. And that is why in all the letters to the churches, there's not a single mention of demon possession, but a constant, constant um, effort to preach the gospel, teach the word. Why? Because it's through the word of God and through the preaching of the gospel that sinners who are children of Satan are released and freed. And then the Bible says that the evil one will not touch them because greater is he that is in them than he that is in the world. And you have every resource after that point to resist every temptation that would ever come upon you. And so, as Christians, we know because Ephesians 6 tells us that there is a battle raging. You know, a lot of people think spiritual warfare is, you know, trying to nullify generational curses and, you know, demonic strongholds and, and doing all this, you know, hocus pocus stuff, holy water and, you know, saying prayers to Satan. You know, you read these books out today, oh, pray out loud to Satan. It's like, oh man, when are you ever supposed to pray to Satan? And all of these things are, are methods to try and get the church to, to, to adopt all these things, to try and deal with things. Just preach the gospel. It's the power of God for all who believe. The gospel is the gospel. That's what frees people from the kingdom of darkness, the gospel. And that's why we were told to preach the gospel. So, when you come into conservative churches and you don't hear anything about demon possession, it's because the Bible doesn't say us to pay any attention to that, just to acknowledge it's true that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the world forces of darkness in the heavenly places, and doing spiritual warfare is not, you know, being a, a specialized person who has learned how to, you know, wrangle and you know, arm wrestle demons down or whatever. Doing spiritual warfare is just obeying God and the power of the Spirit as a normal Christian every day. 
Every day that you are living on this planet as a believer empowered by the Holy Spirit, you are doing spiritual warfare. It doesn't say our battle might be or sometimes is. You are always in a battle. The question is, are you losing or winning? That's it. So hopefully that answers the question. Some of these questions kind of make me excited. (laughs) All right. I'd tell you why, but we don't have enough time. I, I, I'll tell you why in short. I've seen people destroyed, destroyed by people who have taught them so much false doctrine. They've come into my office thinking they're full of demons. <sighs> okay. If there is no sin in, the, in heaven, here's a whole different question. Just totally relax now. We're in a different universe. If there is no sin in heaven... And here's two verses, Revelation 21.4 and 22.15. We'll look at them in a minute. And Satan has sinned from the beginning, 1 John 3.8. How did Satan reside in heaven, Isaiah 14? Now, I like that question. Good. It's even got Bible verses attached. Okay, here we go. First, let me just read to you real quick, Revelation 21.4 and 22.15. Revelation 21.4, speaking of the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain and the first things have been passed away. And even though it doesn't specifically say there's no more sin in heaven, it clearly implies that. A more specific verse, Revelation 22.15, speaking of the contrast between those who enter the new Jerusalem and those who never enter because they are judged and cast into hell, says this, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murders and the idolaters and everyone who loves by practicing loves by practicing loves and who loves and practices lying and the point is clear there that inside the new jerusalem there is no sin okay the question then is is we know that satan has sinned from the beginning first john 3 8 which says satan has sinned from the beginning the not only the beginning of his rebellion against god but the beginning of time as we see him in the garden deceiving eve And so the logical question is this, how did Satan or does Satan reside in heaven? And then they quote Isaiah 14, which we'll look at next. um, If there's no sin in heaven, well, let's go to Isaiah 14, Isaiah 14. And the portion they are referring to is verses 12 through 14. But first of all, you need to know this. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, does not refer to Satan. It refers to the king of Babylon. It is commonly believed that portions of both Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 refer directly to Satan, almost like prophecies or historical narratives of what has happened to Satan. And many of us have been brought up in churches and taught that. I mean, how many people have been taught that about the five I wills of Satan? Or that, you know, he was wise and he was in the Garden of Eden. He's been cast down to earth and now he's confined to earth. And, and we've been taught all that from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. The fact is, though, that the text is not talking about Satan. If you look at the text, you will see in verses 1 through 3 that what Isaiah is talking about is their return from captivity. Now, they haven't even gone to Babylon yet to be captives. But right after Isaiah gets through prophesying, then Nebuchadnezzar comes in, takes the Israelites captive, and so he's speaking of their return from captivity in verses 1 through 3, something that hasn't even taken place yet because they haven't even been captive, let alone return. And then in verse 4, it says this, that you will take up this taunt against who? Satan, the king of Babylon. That is who this whole taunt is directed against. It says it right there. Against the king of Babylon. And if you look at verse 16, in the middle of the verse, it talks about, is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who? The king of Babylon. If you look at the end of the taunt, verse 22, and will cut off from Babylon name and survivors. So, whenever you have a passage and the stream is flowing this way, 
before your passage and that way after your passage is flowing the same way in your passage. Now you can't say, well, it's talking about the king of Babylon up into verse 11 and now in verse 12 it's going to switch to Satan and then in verse 14 it's going to switch back. There is no reason to believe that. Look at verse 12. Now this is what most people have learned. They've been brought to this passage. The context has not has been totally ignored. And then they read verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. Now that phrase, O star of the morning, is translated in the King James Version, Lucifer. And this is the only place in the Bible where star of the morning is used in reference, I think, to anyone other than Jesus Christ, who is also the star of the morning, the bright morning star. Now, what is the morning star? I mean, what is that talking about? Well, in the morning, what happens to the sky? It goes from dark black to what? It's slowly lighter and lighter blue. And so as the light increases over the horizon, the stars that are in the sky begin to fade And the last star that's left is always what star? The brightest one. And so that phrase is talking about the the star of most splendor. It's talking about great splendor and majesty. O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. Now look at that phrase, cut down to earth. Did that happen to Satan? But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. Now most people come to that passage and go, well that's referring to Satan. Well how do you know that? Well it is, look at it. I mean I will ascend to heaven, well what about the context which tells you it's the king of Babylon, it's the man, it's Babylon. Context rules in interpretation. It rules in interpretation. There is no grammatical break. Like, for instance, why don't you include verse 11 as referring to Satan? Your pomp and the music of your harps have brought you down to Sheol. Maggots are spread as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. Why not ten? And they all respond and say to you, even you have been have made um, weak as we and have become like us. Or why not verse 15? Nevertheless, you'll be thrust down to shield the recesses of the pit. Or why not verse 16? You see, we'll gaze at you. See, there's no reason to just take certain verses out of a passage that's all the same taunt and then say, well, this is all referring to Satan, just this part here. The context won't bear it and good hermeneutics won't bear it or Bible study principles. Then you get into the problem of saying if this is talking about what happened to Satan, then it's a historical narrative. The problem is is the passage is a prophecy. So you have a passage that's supposed to be a historical narrative and a prophecy at the same time. If you say, well, it's talking about the king of, of, of Babylon and Satan, then you have to turn it, the king of Babylon into a type. The problem is with types, there's always the type first and the antitype in the future. But in this case, the antitype already happened and the type happens later. Not only that, all types refer to Jesus, unless this is a type. And so it just causes all sorts of problems. So, what I'm, why I go into this detail is because many have believed this is referring to Satan, but I don't think it is. I don't think the context bears it. I don't think hermeneutics allows you to do it. But it is true that Satan has access to heaven. So that part is true. And let me show you how that is. Do you remember in Job chapter 1 and 2 when it says the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and what? Satan was among them. So there Satan is in the presence of God. He is there in the presence of God. And not only that, you see the same thing as Zechariah 3. Do you remember what happens in Zechariah 3? It's the, it's the vision that, that Zerubbabel or Zechariah has about Joshua the high priest and how Satan comes to accuse Joshua the high priest before the Lord and then the Lord cleanses Joshua. So there again, Satan is in the presence of the Lord in heaven. Do you remember Luke chapter 10 after the 70 are sent out and Jesus says, you go out, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons, do it all. I give you authority and I give you a power to do it. And they all go out and they do it. And you remember what he says? He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. They went out and dealt such a 
mortal blow to his deception and sin and all the things that caused by it that Jesus says, I saw him fall from heaven. Doesn't say he was permanently cast down, but he was thrust down by this supernatural act of invasion in Jerusalem by these 70 men preaching the gospel, healing the sick and casting out demons. Do you remember Ephesians 6.10? We just mentioned it. Our battle is against the world forces of darkness. Where? In the heavenly places. But the best place to look at is Revelation chapter 12. And it is in Revelation chapter 12 that we find Satan being cast down to earth. So turn there. Revelation 12. Of course, Revelation is a book about the tribulation and what is going to happen in the last times. Look at verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven and behold a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth he might devour her child now isn't that clear that's about you know as clear as mud to most people they think well that is very interesting whatever that is but we don't have to have time to go into all the pieces here about the dragon and its seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems and all that stuff. The part that I want to focus on is who is the dragon and what is it talking about when it says his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and drew and threw them to the earth. When the dragon is going to devour, try to devour this woman who is giving birth to a child. And I think the woman's Israel and the child's Christ. But look at verse 7. Whenever you're reading in Revelation, a lot of people are confused about things merely because they read a small section. The cure to that is to read huge sections of Revelation. Four verses, four chapters before, four chapters after, after because a lot of times it'll mention something and not mention it for a while and bring it up again. Or it'll bring something up, like in this case, it talks about this dragon, and you're thinking, well, who's this dragon? I mean, you know, maybe it's Satan, maybe it's not. Well, let's look at verse 7. And there was war in heaven, notice, in heaven, Michael and his angels were waging war against, with, with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels wage war. And this is one of the, I think, two texts in the Bible which explain why demons are nothing more than fallen angels. The other text, I think, is in Matthew 25 where it talks about the lake of fire being prepared for the devil and his angels. Or demons. Demons are nothing more than holy angels who have rebelled. Verse 8. And there was not, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them where? In heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Now we get to find out who it is. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. That's pretty clear. Who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. This is his final thrust down to earth. He accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him, speaking of the believers, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Now, the whole point here is this. Satan, we see in Job, in Zechariah, in Luke, in Ephesians 6, and here in Revelation 12, has had access to heaven. But at this point, he is cast down to earth. And it ha he has been at a point, he's been cast down to earth. This is permanent. For this reason, look at verse 12. For this reason, because he has been cast down to earth, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Be glad he's not hanging around here anymore. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Speaking of his, his short time, he knows the tribulation has happened. He has a short time before he gets confined for a thousand years. And so this is the text where Satan is cast down to earth. 
So now back to the question, why do revelations 21 and 22 say that there's no sin in heaven? It's because Satan isn't there. He isn't there in revelation 21 and 22. Well, where is he? Well, look at revelation 20 turn there. Look at verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding a key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Notice the same formula in verse 2 is used in the other text we just looked at in Revelation 12. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So Satan is out. He's deceiving the nations, but he is put into prison for a thousand years. This is the reign of Christ. And it speaks of that in verses four through six. Verse 7, then the thou- when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. Notice he is deceiving the nations now. For a time he will not deceive the nations, and then he will be released again to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, together with them, uh, to, gather, to, gather the, to gather them together for war. So now he has gone out and he's going to bring all these people and they are going to attack the new Jerusalem, which is now on earth, the, 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 or the, the um, throne of Christ, which is now in Jerusalem on earth. The new Jerusalem is coming up. And then it says, verse 9, And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp and the saints and the beloved city, this is Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil, who was deceived, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then verses 11 through 15, it talks about the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers are dealt with and cast into the lake of fire. And so now, here you are. You have all of the unbelievers who are dead and alive, all judged and cast into the lake of fire, and Satan and his demons all cast into the lake of fire. And so, who's left? Believers and holy angels who are perfectly holy and righteous. The believers because of what Christ has done. And so that is why Revelation 21 and 22 say there's no sin in heaven. Okay, that was a long answer to a short question. All right, switching, just totally, just relax now. Here's something else, false doctrine things. Um, here's a question. As a matter of fact, there was quite a few questions on this, and so I wanted to make sure I got this answered. Why is the Catholic Church so powerful worldwide when it has false teaching? Why do so many people believe in the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church? Please explain this to me. The Roman Catholic religion is so man-made. Why do so many people belong to this false teaching? First of all, not everything the Roman Catholic teaches is false. You need to understand that. The reason so many people believe in Roman Catholicism is the same reason many of you believe what you do. You've been raised in a family. You've been taught the Bible is the authority and the Word of God. You've been taught over and over again over a long period of time that you know what we teach here is true and you believe it. Same thing in the Roman Catholic Church. They grow up, they go to catechism, they go through all the things, they believe it's true because they're told that. That's it. So, that's kind of a general answer. But let me ask you this, what would convince a Roman Catholic to reject what Roman Catholics believe? I mean, what would it take to get a Roman Catholic to reject Roman Catholicism? How would a Roman Catholic come to believe What we believe, for instance, or you could say, how could anybody in any religion, how could other Protestants in other Protestant denominations who disagree with us on matters, how could they agree with us? You see, this is the real crux of the issue. How does a person come to the knowledge of the truth? It all happens first at salvation, doesn't it? A person has to first be saved, and then once they are saved, they begin to understand the word of God, not the other way around. They are first saved by God and then being transformed and having the Holy Spirit they can now understand the things that are spiritually appraised. But even if a person was saved, how could they 
How could they understand that what the Catholic Church taught was wrong? Well, it comes down to this. They would have to believe an authority that was totally trustworthy that they would trust in. This is the problem. Roman Catholic dogma teaches the church is over the word of God. That the church is the sole authority of faith and practice. That the church is infallible, not necessarily the Bible. They believe that the church can override the Bible and add to the word of God. And a matter of fact, they do. So when you're talking to a Roman Catholic, this is what's happening. They aren't thinking what you're thinking. They aren't thinking this is the infallible word of God and this has everything we need. They aren't thinking that at all. They don't hear that thought never even enters their mind. Do you believe the Bible? Sure, they believe the Bible. But what do they believe more than the Bible? The authority of the church. And what does the church draw from? Just the Bible? No. The church draws from what is called the magisterium, which is a huge body of teaching, which incorporates the writings of the church fathers and, and the, the conclusions of the councils and, and papal announcements and all these other things. It's like a huge body of information. So when you, as a Bible thumper, come up to a Catholic and you say, you know, hey, how come you believe that? The Bible says this. They look at you like, so? This is what the church teaches. Why? Because in their mind, the sole authority is not the word of God. In their mind, the sole authority is who? The church. So you need to also understand that. So no one would ever come out of the Catholic Church until they had a change of mind that the Bible was now going to be trusted be above the church. Because if you didn't do that, then you would just believe what the church told you. And the church is never going to tell you our doctrines are wrong. Now sometimes God, by His grace comes into the life of a person, gets them saved, and then they make a change, then they begin to understand the Bible, then they reject some of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. But you need to realize this. You, you know, let's say some of us who weren't raised Catholic, we go into a Roman Catholic Church, and what do you see there? I mean, it's kind of weird, man. There's statues and, you know, all these weird rituals. If you go into like a really, you know, heavy-duty cathedral, they have costumes and tassels and swing incense back and forth. And I mean, it's almost like worse than the Old Testament and the whole sacrificial system there. Just all kinds of gaudy procedures and methodologies. It's real. It's what is called high church. Very formal, very organized, lots of ritual. And you may see that and go, whoa, that is just like, whoa, that is so, as the question stated, man-made. Well, let me ask you this. Where in the Bible does it say you're supposed to sit in a pew? Where in the Bible does it say that we're to have bulletins? Where in the Bible does it say we're supposed to pass around those little, you know, velvety pouches of the offering with two sticks on each side? You know, where does it say we are to use an overhead? Where does it say, you know, we are to always sing our songs first, then get hammered by the preacher and go home? (laughs) You know, why not the other way around? And, you know, Edward may do it someday. Um, The whole point is this. We do all sorts of things that are not found in the Bible. They're just purely traditions that we're all used to, and so they don't bother us a bit because we're used to them traditions in and of themselves are not bad they become bad when they contradict the word of god then they are bad because now they're supplanting the word of god now this is what happens though in the in 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 catholicism which is very subtle and which really confuses a lot of protestants You're talking to somebody who's a Roman Catholic. And, you know, you've heard me preach. You've gone to Dave's, you know, disciple or evangelism class or whatever. And you know that the gospel, you know, as Paul says, you know, is is Christ died on the cross, was buried and rose again the third day and all the things related to that. And that's kind of the gospel message. And so you say, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Well, the Catholic says, yes. Well, do you believe he's the son of God? Yes. Oh, do you believe he's God incarnate? Yeah, yeah, we believe that. That he was born of a virgin. You bet. Hmm. That he was buried after dying on the cross. Yes, 
And why did he die on the cross? For our sins. Huh. And then what happened at the third day? Oh, he rose from the the, the grave. You believe in the resurrection? Yeah. You're thinking they're going, well, maybe that's, that's what I believe. And see, this is the confusing part. Now, here is the difference. A Christian believes those things and trusts in those things alone to save them. A Christian places their faith in the work of Christ on the cross and his person to save them. They repent of their sins and they receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, believing he did die on the cross for their sins. He was buried and rose again the third day. When you believe that, when you're willing to reject your way of life and to receive Jesus Christ, trusting only in what he accomplished on the cross to save you, you are saved. Now, this is the subtle thing that happens in Roman Catholicism. They're taught all the facts that you're taught, but when it comes to how do you get saved, they don't say, believe and be saved. They say, keep the seven sacraments. Get baptized. You don't have any choice of that. Usually you're little. You go to, you know, confession. Make sure, you know, you you keep... Your sins confessed and do penance and the rosary and, you know, do all of these different things and make sure you have the last rites before you die. Do you know why you have to have the last rites before you die? Because if you were to, to say the Lord's name in vain and blaspheme God and die without having the last rites or have gone to confession, you would go directly to hell. You would not go to purgatory. You would go directly to hell, not Pasco, because you died with a mortal sin, which is unforgivable. If you don't have a priest do confession with you. Now, what does that mean? Who is responsible for your salvation? If you have to keep the sacraments in order to be saved, who is responsible for your salvation? Well, you are. Not Christ. You are not saved by his work. You don't, know, you don't do works because you're saved. You do works to be saved. And no Catholic knows for certain until the very day, the very moment of their death, if they're even going to go to heaven. Because, you know, they might commit some mortal sin and die quickly. You have a brain aneurysm or whatever. And so you need to understand that they believe all the pieces of the gospel, the very pieces that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4, that he preached to them, which they received, you know, which they, by which they were saved, that Christ died for sins according to the scripture, he was buried and rose again on the third day. They believe all of that. But what they're trusting in to save them is their going to mass and confession and baptism and their association with the church. All of those things, they're trusting in their works to save them. And that's why so many Roman Catholics end up giving their life to Christ. Christ because they already believe in the elements of the gospel you don't have to convince them that Jesus died in the cross or that he was born of a virgin they they believe it and I think right now if we were to all raise our hands we would find out that a large majority of us have been Roman Catholics in the past and so that's why so many people are Roman Catholics they they don't understand but don't condemn them just because they have high church or don't condemn them because they're different than us or sing different songs or have more rituals. We have plenty of rituals and cultural things we do. The real error in the movement is that they give people the gospel but tell them to trust in the sacraments. So the gospel is something you just understand and believe intellectually. It's not something you trust in totally to save you. Okay, here's a question that will illustrate the, point, the question we just did. Here's the question. Did Jesus have blood brothers and sisters? Did Mary have other children? See, this is the question. Now, we have a question like that, and here it is. You, you come up to a Roman Catholic, and you say, did they? Well, they've been taught by the church in what is called the perpetual virginity of Mary. In other words, that Mary has remained a virgin. She's still a virgin to this day. As a matter of fact, Mary is becoming more and more worshipped in the Catholic Church until I think an article in Time magazine that I have in my office said that there was so there's something like 12 million plus Catholics who believe that you have to go through Mary or you can't get to heaven. She is now being seen as co-redemptor with Christ. As a matter of fact, you can even 
get to heaven just through Mary in some circles. But the question is this, did she have other children? Well, if you believe the church, the answer is no. If you believe the Bible, the answer is yes, sure. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter 12, you can turn there. And you were to look at verses 46 through 48 of Matthew 12. It says, And while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak with him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. So what happened there? His mothers and his brothers came and wanted to speak to him. Turn over to Matthew 13, verse 55. Jesus is now visiting Nazareth. He's teaching. They're rejecting him. And this is what their comment is in verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers? What are their names? James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. He had four half-brothers by Mary. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? The whole point is, is all the people in this town say, oh yeah, we know Mary, we know his brothers, his four brothers, and we don't know how many sisters, it just uses the plural, he had plural sisters. And so, if you believe the Bible, the answer to the question is, yes, Mary had other people, if you believe the Catholic Church, no. It comes down to this, what is your authority? What are you going to believe? The church or the word of God? Okay, now switching Two, some last time things that are kind of fun. This is, a, this is a great question here. This one comes up frequently. Romans 11.26, you can turn to Romans 11.26, says, all Israel will be saved. And the person asked this question. Do the Jews not have to accept the Messiah as Savior? Or will they automatically be saved at that time? Well, here in Romans 11, what you need to understand is the whole chapter is, is basically saying, listen, God has not rejected Israel forever. Sure, they've rejected him, but he is going to save them. And Paul begins to encourage them. Look at verse 5. In the same way then, there has also come to be at present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Now, the problem is, is in verse 26, it says all Israel will be saved. And sometimes the word all might mean a specific group. In other words, all doesn't have to mean all every each. You know, let's say there was a huge semi full of marbles uh, driving down the freeway and it jackknifed and all those marbles fell on the freeway. And you just happened to be one of the cars who was sitting there right behind the truck. And you called somebody in your cell phone and said, man, there are marbles all over the freeway. Well, does that mean over every single inch? No. What you're saying is they're, they're over most places in this specific area. So sometimes all can mean all every each, and sometimes it can mean a specific group. So, if you look at this thing, where this verse where it says, all Israel will be saved, you have to ask yourself, is there anything in the context which tells us that the all is a, a subcategory, a specific group, and you look at verse 5 and you say, there, it's a remnant. The problem is, as Paul says, at the present time. So at the present time Paul was writing, there was a remnant of believing Jews. So you can't say that works. You can look at verse 7. What then? What Israel was seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Here, it seems to say that Israel was seeking God and salvation, but didn't obtain it because they rejected Christ. But those who were chosen obtained it, and that could be the remnant of Jews and mostly Gentiles. The rest were hardened. So you look at this and you think, okay, so from the preceding context, we could say that it's not really clear that this all means just some of a specific group, like the remnant or whatever. 
Now you look at verses 25, and then we're going to read down through verse 29. We'll kind of see the near context before and after, and then we'll get to really answering the question. Look at verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, and this is something new, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial, notice partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. Now let's just stop there for a second. What did you talk about this partial hardening? In other words, it's not a full hardening. Why? Because he said in verse 5 that there was a remnant of Jews according to God's choice at that time who were saved. Partial hardening. And then he uses this very key phrase, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What's that? Well, remember, in in Throughout history, there was a time when the Jews were kind of in control. But then there became the time of the Gentiles. If you remember in in, uh, Daniel's vision or Daniel's uh, book where Nebuchadnezzar has his vision of the the big statue and the head of gold represents the Gentile nation of Babylon and the the chest and arms of silver which uh, represented the uh, Medo-Persian Empire and the belly and thighs of bronze which talked about the, the Greek Empire and the legs of iron about Rome and the feet mixed with iron and clay about the Gentiles and nations after that. And we know that during this time that mostly Gentiles are coming to Christ and so all this time of history is all this time of the Gentiles and it will culminate at the beginning of the tribulation and at the beginning of the tribulation then God will turn back to set his attention on Israel to focus his attention on Israel doesn't mean the Gentiles won't exist anymore but instead of looking at at Gentiles to save them primarily he is now going to turn back to Israel and that's what he describes here in the context about the olive branch, um, the olive tree, and the natural branches being Israelites, being cut off. And he says, and you Gentiles, being the unnatural branches, have been grafted in. But I just want you to know, don't get proud and don't think you're something special because God chose you by his grace. Remember, God can and will graft those natural branches back in to that natural olive branch, speaking of Christ and the salvation that comes through him. So, verse 26 comes our verse. So, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so, at that time, after that time, all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Now, notice what's happening here. Here we, we are told that a hardening has happened until a specific time, the end of the age of the Gentiles, which is at the beginning of the tribulation. Then it says all Israel will be saved. And then it gives a time reference when the deliverer comes back to Zion. And the deliverer, when he comes back to Zion, or comes from Zion to rule the earth, will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That is, he will wipe out all the ungodly from Jacob, another name for Israel, so that there are only believing Israelites, so all will be saved. Now the text that helps us see this pretty clearly is in Zechariah 14. Now, 13. Go to Zechariah 13. Zechariah is a book towards the end of the Old Testament, and it's got many prophecies about Christ, and this helps us understand better what is going to happen. Now, let me just give you a survey of the last three chapters. Chapter 12 is talking about an attack on Jerusalem. Chapter 13 is talking about how God is going to expose false prophets and that even though um, Christ will be struck when he returns again, the remnant will be saved. And then in chapter 14, Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives to rule and reign on earth for a thousand years as we've already read from Revelation. Now look at... Verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 7 of Zechariah. Now, you're going to notice that there is a verse here you're familiar with. It's in the middle of verse 7. It's quoted in Matthew 26, 31 and Mark 14, 27. But here's the whole thing. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, this is God calling somebody else his partner. Speaking of Christ, and here is the scripture that's spoken of of Christ. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. 
And it will come about in the land, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. Speaking to Jerusalem, to, about the Jews in the area of Jerusalem, declares the Lord, will come back in the land of Israel, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. Isn't that exactly what we read in Romans chapter 11, verse 26? And God will remove evil from Jacob. And then there's a third left. Look at verse 9. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined. And test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So what am I saying here? That when Jesus comes back to earth, all the wicked, as in the prophecy or the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, all the wicked are destroyed. And so that the only Jews who are left are Jewish believers and all of those people will be saved. Now, just for something interesting, if you look at chapter 14 of Zechariah, it says, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. And I will judge, uh, I will gather together all the nations and judge them in battle. And then look at verse 13 or verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem and on the east. And then he goes down. Jesus says when he comes back, he comes back to the Mount of Olives, which is the highest mountain in the area of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built on a mountain, but the Mount of Olives is a little bit higher to the east. Now what is neat about that is turn to Acts 1. This is all free. Turn to Acts 1. And this is Jesus's, This is Luke's account of Jesus' ascension right before he goes up into heaven. And verse 9, it says this, And after he had said these things, that they would be his witnesses, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. And they, they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Now this is an interesting question. You know, how often do you see somebody just slowly lift off? And go up into the sky. I mean, that, that's a jaw dropper. And so they're watching Jesus go up into the sky, into the clouds, and disappear. And they're standing there with their mouths open. And the angels go, you know, what, what are you doing? Now notice what they say in verse 11. Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. How is that? He will come from the clouds visibly in the sight of men to earth. The question is where? Look at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That's exactly what Zechariah 14 says. He will return to the Mount of Olives. So, that's the answer to that question. Now, one more little related one, which is real quick, and we'll end. Who will be in the millennium? Who will be in the millennium? Well, let's talk about mortals in the millennium. This is what will happen. We've just learned that when Jesus comes back, what happens? All the unbelievers are slain. All the wicked are cut off. And yet a remnant enters into the millennium. They are saved Christians in their mortal bodies who are alive when Jesus comes back to earth. And so... When you say who is in the millennium, it's all the believing Jews who came to Christ during the tribulation and we know from the book of Revelation that many Gentiles also come to the Lord during the tribulation. 
So what happens? Well, at the beginning of the tribulation, the rapture occurs. So all the the church and all the Christians are taken out. But then there's all this evangelism going on by the 144,000 Jews during the tribulation. They, They spread the gospel. Many come, both Jews and Gentiles, to Christ. At the end, when Jesus comes back, all the wicked are slain, the separation of the sheep and the goats. So who enters the millennium? Only believers, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Now, those believing Jews and believing Gentiles are not immortal. They haven't been glorified. They just enter into the, the, the earthly reign of Christ. And when that happens, they have babies. And those babies are not automatically saved. That's why when we read the passage about Satan at the end of the thousand years... He comes out of his prison and he deceives the nations. There's this huge proliferation of uh, population boom when Christ is ruling and reigning on earth and the curse has been diminished and Satan has been bound. And so the earth is multiplying like crazy, but there's many unbelievers. And when Christ is, or when Satan is released, they rebel against Christ and his saints and God destroys them. So that's who the mortals are. But the immortals are angels. And I don't know if we'll be able to see them or not. Christ and believers who will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. It says that in Timothy. It says that at the end of the book of Revelation that we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So that's who will be in the millennium. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to have your word. And Father, I know there's a lot of things we could have talked about, even related to these issues. Father, we know that Your word has the answers for us. And Father, I just pray that those who are hoping to have their questions answered would not feel um, gypped or, Father, just neglected. And I pray that they would have the courage to just approach one of the elders or one of the pastors or maybe come to the basic Bible doctrine class so they could ask those questions they have. And, And Father, just have more understanding of your word and who you are and what you have done and what your will is for us that we might give you more glory and honor and praise. We thank you for all this in Christ's name. Amen.